Welcome to Vineyard Church Cardiff podcast. Alice is continuing in our series, Reset, Rebuild, Restore, and she's looking at Rebuild today. Hello. Last week was the first in a three-part mini-series that we have called Reset, Rebuild, and Restore. And as such, we're going to be taking a brief pause on our Advancing the Kingdom series. Now, we're going to return to it in a couple of weeks' time, and we'll keep sharing our tri-stories in the meantime, so keep going. But we felt led to do this mini-series now because it feels a bit like a change moment in regards to the COVID-19 pandemic. Whilst nothing can be said with absolute certainty, (laughs) surely that's been the mantra of the last year and a half, it does feel like things are beginning to open up more and more. And so we just wanted to take a few weeks to think about what this means for our church, to think about what kind of community God is calling us to be and with what purpose. And last week, James started the series with Reset, thinking about how a worshipping God is to be our highest priority. That is what we are called to be, a people who let God be God, giving him our full worship, our hearts, our obedience, our lives. And this is a reset moment, perhaps, you know, where our hearts might have become distracted or focused on other things. And this week, I want to look at the idea of rebuild. As I've been thinking about this concept, I've been drawn back to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Some of you will recall that we did a whole series in Nehemiah a couple of years ago. And the book of Nehemiah describes the events that took place in the Old Testament period of history called the exile. The people of God had been conquered and deported um, by their enemies and the city of Jerusalem and the temple have been destroyed. And a generation or so passes and then people, the people now living scattered under the Persian Empire are given permission to return to their land, to Jerusalem, which is still in ruins. And so some return and they start to rebuild the temple. And there's also kind of an unsuccessful attempt at rebuilding the city walls. Now, of course, walls to a city in those days were a big deal in terms of their security and prosperity. You know, without them, they were still vulnerable to attack. Without them, Jerusalem at this point was rather the laughingstock of its local neighbours who could remember, um, who knew of Jerusalem in its heyday. And so Nehemiah, who's living over 700 years, uh, 700 miles away, is heartbroken when he hears that the walls still have not been rebuilt. And he gets permission to return to Jerusalem and to take a lead with the rebuilding project. Now that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour. If that has piqued your interest at all, go back and listen to the whole series from a couple of years ago. But it's chapter three that I really want to look at today, the moment when Nehemiah organises the local people and they start rebuilding the city walls. So let's jump in into chapter three and take a look. Now, it's got loads of crazy names in it, but try to not let my kind of rather clumsy reading of it distract from what is actually going on, from the beautiful picture that is built up over these verses. So let's jump in. Chapter three, Nehemiah chapter three. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, where, which they dedicated, and as far as, as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanar. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshalam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, not Banana, also made repairs. The next section 
was repaired by the men of Tokoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jashana Gate was repaired by Jooida, son of Pesea, and Meshulam, son of Besodea. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Meronoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Ezeel, son of Horhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumaf, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabneah, made repairs next to him. Malkajah, son of Harim, and Hashab, son of Pahamoab, repaired another section, and the tower of the ovens. Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zanoah. They rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malkajar, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Now I'll stop there. <laughs> the rest of the chapter continues in the same vein, naming the groups of people building and locating which bit of the wall they built. Now the wall they were building around the city wasn't kind of in the shape of a circle. If you look at kind of pictures of it, actually, to my mind, it looks more like a fish slice. And what Nehemiah is doing is he's starting at the top of the fish slice, if you like, and he's working methodically round, listing, um, naming who did what where as he goes round. And of course, their names are now forever recorded here in history. Now, I do appreciate that these verses don't lend themselves well to memory verses or worship songs or whatever. But I find them really deeply moving because they paint this beautiful picture of a community working together with a shared vision, doing what was needed to be done to restore their city. And that's, of course, why I was drawn to these verses, uh, thinking about this idea of rebuilding. Now, you might instantly be able to think of some parallels between their story and ours. For example, in some ways, um, just like the people of Israel, we are a community that has been a scattered people for this past year. You know, we've been unable to meet collectively as we normally might. Or another way, that like after a while, the people of Israel, they started to assimilate into the culture of the regime that they now lived under. And likewise, we have started to adjust to this season and we have new habits and ways of being. You know, we now have new rhythms to our week. Many of us spend our Sundays very differently. Now, for example, maybe if you're honest, you feel a bit of resistance at the thought of this changing. But I do want to be really clear, it's not a total parallel between their story and ours. You know, this is not like the rubble of Jerusalem. It's very clear to me that God has been building his church over lockdown. It hasn't been destroyed. You know, we're not surveying the wreckage um, just like Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah did. Um, back in chapter two, if you want to look at it. You know, just this past week or so, I have heard so many encouraging stories that like people who have engaged with us over YouTube and are now coming to our in-person gatherings. Stories of people saying yes to following Jesus for the first time, having done one of our online alpha courses. You know, we had 28 people recommit or come to faith through our online alpha courses in 2020. I've read stories of Kingdom Try on our story wall. So many things to be encouraged about. God has not stopped building his church. 
But if this is a change moment, I think it is, there is a sense of needing collectively, I feel, to go again. You know, to regroup, to recommit, to be re-envisioned as to what kind of community God wants to rebuild. And I think that this chapter here in Nehemiah 3 paints a really useful picture of what this can look like. So firstly, we see here a community where everyone gets to build side by side. Just scan through that chapter. Note how many times the words next to him or next to them crops up in these verses. This is a group of people who have turned up, pitched in and played their part as a community side by side. What a bunch. Wouldn't it be amazing to have had your name on that list? Now, I'm not going to suggest that we write a list like that for our church. How would that even go? But just imagine if there was one for a second. Where would your name be? What would it feel like to see your name on that list? Now think about this, that what we do now fits alongside countless men and women over the years, the people of God who have turned up, pitched in and played their part side by side, extending, advancing the kingdom message of Jesus. Everyone gets to build. Now I say gets to because it is a choice that we each get to make, you know, to turn up and pitch in or to sit it out on the sidelines. And Nehemiah acknowledges this in verse five. Did you notice that he just kind of sneakily slips it in there? He says this, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoya, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. He just kind of slides it in and carries on. And as such, it's almost to me like he's saying, you know, no big deal, don't let it throw you. You know, you'll always get your haters, your cynics. Don't worry, just keep going. You know, it's true in life that it's often easier for people to criticize than contribute. When you're trying to create something big, you know, when you're working towards like a big audacious vision, like seeing the city walls restored or restoring hope to our city or seeing the nation of Wales renewed, some folks would always rather just sit it out and criticise for many reasons, fear of failure, pride, past experience. But don't let it get you down. Don't let it throw you off the task. You know, ultimately, these nobles here, they miss out on the joy of seeing the job done. Of being able to walk past that wall years later and be like, I did that. That's the bit I did. I added those stones there. They miss out on that. And they miss out on more than this. They miss out on the joy of seeing the God of the universe take the community's efforts and multiply them for his purposes. Now, coming back to this idea that everyone gets to build, I love the fact that from verse one, we see the leaders going first, getting their hands dirty. That is a great model for leadership and one that we hold dearly to at the vineyard. You know, there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. Everyone has a role to play. Just note for a second how diverse this group of people building were. There were people from all sorts of different social backgrounds. There were local leaders, there were servants, there were different kinds of tradesmen and artists, you know, verse 8, there were goldsmiths and perfume makers. There were priests, there were whole families getting involved, there were women, just look in verse 12. All sorts. <clears throat> and it would seem that none of them were master builders, none of them particularly qualified, but all of them were building together side by side with the common purpose of rebuilding these walls. I think that's a beautiful picture of the kind of church that God wants to build. A diverse, inclusive community where everyone gets to play, everyone gets to build. Regardless of race, gender, whether they're single or married, their class, their age, their experience. 
And I also would just add that in the week that we've just marked the first anniversary of the death of George Floyd and all that that has stood for, that we remain all too aware that there is work to be done in the world at large and that we as people of the kingdom have a part to play in leading the way. You know, a diverse community that works together side by side is a sign of the kingdom of God, the kingdom purposes of God at work. And it's something that we need to continually work towards and stand for as his church. So this is a community where everyone gets to build side by side. This is a community that serves the need in front of it. You know, this community, they see the need in front of them and they do what is needed in response to it. These guys, they show up and they pitch in. Now, I am no expert, but I would imagine that it is really hard building a wall like this in the baking hot conditions of the Middle East. On a very small level, I know as soon as I start any level of decorating in my house, I instantly want to give in. I have got no patience for it. Just ask my, I lack the patience, I lack the skill, I'm instantly bored and I want to quit. Slapdash is a word that's been used of my home decorating. But not these guys, they keep going, they show up and they serve. These kind of people are gold dust in our community, aren't they? And as I look back over this past year, I'm like, wow, how many people in our church have served their socks off this past year? Maybe not under the baking hot heat of the Middle Eastern sun, but certainly under the pressure and intensity of the strangest 18 months in our living history. I think of members of our kids' teams dancing in their living rooms to create kids' worship, of task force volunteers let loose in Tesco's, you know, in the style of supermarket sweep, <laughs> in my imagination, 90s reference, let loose in Tesco's to buy food for people, of worship teams recording in their bedrooms, of Shane laboriously adding worship ly lyrics and Bible verses to our online content each week, of small group leaders slumped, exhausted in their sofa, on their sofas, exhausted but logging on nonetheless to Zoom calls to support and pastor people in their small groups. I could go on. Thank you all for not giving up, for working your socks off this past year or so. Now the truth is, <clears throat> as things open up, we need to rebuild all of our teams. We need folks to sign up again, to go again, to recommit to our Sunday teams, our kids teams, our restore teams, the works. One way, you can, one way you can respond to the talk this morning is to go on our website to the join a team section and sign up. Will you join us as we rebuild? Will you respond to the needs around you? Do notice that in this chapter, no one person has to do everything. They just do the thing in front of them. This is quite literally the case in some places. Verse 10, adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs opposite his house. And you'll see that idea comes up throughout the whole chapter. Yeah, you know, these are people just doing the thing that literally is right in front of them to do. Or in verse one, we see the priests building the sheep gate. Now the sheep gate was the gate nearest the temple where the sheep would be brought in for sacrifices in the temple. The priests here are just taking responsibility for their patch. And so on, each person served the need in front of them. They had done what God had given, they, they were doing what God had given them to be responsible for. What need can you see right in front of you? What is God asking you to be responsible for? This community serves the need in front of them, but they also serve the vision ahead of them. And they, they serve the need and they serve the vision. You need these two things together. 
The truth is that most, most of the time, most of us don't feel called to clean the toilets or to put the chairs out or to turn up early to be on team. And I think it can be quite easy, if I'm honest, to use calling or a lack of vision for something as an excuse not to do what's needed. But sometimes the calling or the vision is just to serve the need right in front of you. It's like, hey, you need someone to help on kids. Well, I can do that for you for a while. Yeah, you know, I might not do it forever, but if that's what you need me to do, then sure, I'll help out. Why not? The truth is, as we see in verse 14, someone had to rebuild the dung gate, which was, as it sounds, the place where all the waste from the city was removed. The poop gate, if you like. <clears throat> and Malkajar, son of Rechab, you have our full respect. I would just note that he was also the local, the ruler of a local district, district called Beth Hakarem, which literally translates as house of the vineyard. Make of that what you will. So you serve the need in front of you, but you also need to serve the vision ahead of you so that you don't get lost in the serving and forget the reason. You know, the keeping the vision ahead of you is what stops your heart from getting hard. This is what stops resentment creeping in when you're there in the baking hot sun piling one brick on top of another. It's what stops serving becoming about us, becoming about you. So what was this community's shared vision? It was of a walled city, a city that could take its stand against its enemies. But it wasn't to be a closed off city. You know, these walls had huge gates for people to enter into. This city was to be open for business and ready for people to enter. Do you know, in some ways our vision as a church is no different. To build a kingdom community that takes its stand against the kingdom of darkness. A community that sees the work of the enemy, you know, the injustice, the pain, the suffering that is all around us and takes its stand and says that is not okay. A community that advances the kingdom of light, that takes its stand in this city and beyond. But this isn't to be a walled off community. The gates are to be open for us to go out and advance the kingdom in the city and beyond, but also to allow others to come in. I'd love just to tell you a story that happened to Matt and I a few weeks ago that seems to have had huge significance to us. Um, it was a few weeks ago and Matt and I had been working in my sister's house for the afternoon, Chloe's house. Um, now that's because we had some people doing work in our house, we're in a bubble with her, so don't let that throw you off. We'd been working there for the afternoon and then when the time came to leave, um, Chloe was upstairs on a call so we just let ourselves out, got in the car, Matt was just starting to drive off when I had that realisation that I didn't have my phone on me. I must have left it back in Chloe's house. So I got Matt to pull the car over again and I ran out the car. I was running because we were already behind schedule. We were already late. So I ran back into her house and flung the door open. And there I was frantically searching around the downstairs of her house, trying to find my phone. It literally seemed to have disappeared. And I was right in the back of her house. And when I came back into the kitchen, there was a young boy standing in the doorway to the kitchen. I let out a shriek <laughs> and this boy just ran right into the back room of the house. A few seconds later, Matt appeared back in the house. He had seen this child coming down the road and to his surprise had seen him then turn and come in through the open door into Chloe's house. Now it became um, clear pretty quickly to Matt and I that this young boy, he was probably eight or nine years old, um, had um, a severe learning disability. He was non-verbal, um, non-communicative non in every way, 
he seemed totally unaware of what was going on around him. He had bare feet. Now, having said that, he wasn't distressed at all. He seemed to be having a lovely time. He was literally opening every cupboard, every door in Chloe's house, having a good old look around. We weren't sure what to do, but Matt went back out and he looked out onto the street, looked all around to see if he could see a kind of a grown-up anywhere that seemed to be looking for a lost child. But there was no one in sight. So we thought, well, we're going to have to call the police. So we called the police and the police turned up in their huge van and they parked it outside and they came in. Now, it would appear that no one had reported a child missing. So the police um, kind of said that, you know, they were going to take this boy with them back to the station and um, to try and then locate the boy's parents. Now, this wasn't going to be an easy task because the boy had no intention of leaving Chloe's house. He was having a lovely time looking around in all the cupboards. Just trying to, we were just trying to work out what to do and how to kind of, you know, make this go well. When suddenly a man appeared at the door of Chloe's house. This was the boy's father and he had been running around the streets, he'd seen the police van, seen the open door, put two and two together and there he was, hoping, desperately hoping, that we had his son inside and of course we did. Moments later, the boy's mother arrived too. She rushed into the house and I've got to say, it was one of the most emotional moments in my life. She let out this wail when she saw her son. She was just full of anxiety, of desperation, of anguish. She'd clearly had what had been probably the most difficult, one of the most difficult 20 minutes of her life. And then also that relief and that joy of seeing her son there and seeing him well. You know, Matt and I were in the room just holding back tears as they were reunited in that moment. And just, you know, as the emotion started to subside a bit, she just said to us, she was just so grateful that the door had been opened to Chloe's house and that this boy had had a safe place to come in. You know, because this child was so vulnerable, her greatest fear was that he had just walked onto the busy road behind the house and been hit by a car. She was just so relieved to see that he was safe. And as Matt and I talked about this later on in the day, we were just aware that that, that was a God moment, that our door, that that door was open in, that in the timing. Um, of it all. Just felt like that was God giving this boy a safe place to be in that moment. And as I've thought about that story since, I have felt God say to me prophetically, you have to keep the door open. I think that this is prophetic for us as a church. We have to keep the door open. The door has to stay open for all whom the Lord wants to bring. The gates need to be open. This is what the Lord has called us to as his church, to take a stand against the plans of the enemy and to open the gates to offer refuge and hope, a place of salvation and restoration for all. You know, in Hosea chapter 2, verse 15, we see God speaking to the people of Israel who are in exile. And he promises them that in time he will give them back her vineyards. And then he says, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The valley of Acor, Acor means trouble. It was an actual place. Get that transformation in that moment. The valley of trouble will be turned into a door of hope. And we know that's what God promised then. And we know that that is what he did through the person of Jesus. You know, this is the complete restoration message of the gospel. That the valley of trouble becomes a door of hope. We are as a church to be 
that door of hope, to offer people a place that welcomes the hopeless and shares with them the love of Jesus. A community that welcomes prodigals home into a relationship with their father. You have to keep the door open, the Lord is saying. As a community, we have to take our stand. We have to keep the gates open. That is our vision. And we must keep this vision ahead of us as we serve faithfully. We must pray that we see it fulfilled in our lifetime, just as these people in Nehemiah's time saw the building of the walls fulfilled in their lifetime. Now, I would just end with one quick observation, if I may. Just skip forward into chapter 6 of Nehemiah, verses 15 to 16. Just read these remarkable verses. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realised that this work had been done with the help of our God. So what should have taken months or years was achieved in just 52 days. And that's because what they achieved wasn't possible by human effort alone. God has taken the efforts of this community, you know, this community that has built together, that has served the need and served the vision. And then he multiplies it for his glory. And this speaks loud volumes to the surrounding nations. They are afraid and lose their self-confidence when they see what God has done. The enemy loses his confidence when he sees what God has done. It's like the loaves and fishes effect. You know, where God, where we see the story of Jesus, where he takes that offering and he multiplies it to feed many. It's just like that. God takes that offering and he multiplies it. So let's not be fooled into thinking that our efforts, our serving are enough in themselves, you know, for God to achieve his plans and purposes. No, it's by the grace of God, it's pure grace that he would take our efforts, our acts of service, our blood, sweat and tears, and that he would take them and then he multiplies them to use it for his glory, for the advance of his kingdom. We just have to give him our yes. Amen.